Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host and a professional scientist and researcher. And today we're going to deal with a couple of issues in COVID-19 and really get an update from an expert in the area. Now, back in early February, I had as a guest on the podcast uh, Dr. Ilaria Capua. She's the director of the One Health Center for Excellence at the University of Florida, and she's with us again today. So welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Capua. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I wish that we were sitting in the same room again. <laughs> That's was a right. Little... That's right. We did it face to face. And now well, we are doing it screen to screen. <laughs> and and speaking of screening. <laughs> and speaking <laughs> of screening. And of screens like, uh, what, what are they? Face masks. Well, that's not a screen. It's a face mask. But it would yeah, be a screen in Italian, like schermo. So there you are. <laughs> ah, there you go. Oh, that's great. So I really wanted to have you back on for a couple reasons. So the first part of today is to get an update on some of the edges of the COVID-19 situation that most people may not be familiar with, and then go in the second half of today's podcast and discuss your upcoming book, Circular Health. And so we'll do those two things, and I urge everyone to stay on for the second part of the discussion as well. But I, I watch your now bi-weekly briefings that you do as part of the One Health Center on the COVID-19 phenomenon. And really, what is the current state of the pandemic in the United States? Where are we here in terms of its uh, numbers? And are we really in a second wave or is this just the first wave playing out? Wow, that's a, that's a, lot, of, a lot of questions altogether. So I, where do I start from? Um, let me start from the bi-weekly updates that you, me- that you mentioned, um, because uh, with uh, Sonia Rasmussen, who is uh, a pediatrician here at UF, and she has uh, great experience in uh, uh, managing uh, epidemics, actually pandemics, we... we um, get together every two weeks to talk a little bit about the international situation and to talk about some specific uh, issues that uh, are of attention at, at that time. And, um, you know, uh, when you look at this issue, you really need to look at its global dimension because this is not, um, this, this is a, a, a transformational event. I mean, a pandemic is uh, is is a, an infection uh, that takes lives and that uh, leaves uh, the world different from the the world it found. And uh, 
And so, you know, when, when, when we say, okay, how is the situation? How is it going? What is happening? Well, what I can say is that um, lots is happening and um, the, the, the virus actually behaves in, in many different ways. And, and that's why it's difficult to really get a good grasp on what is happening. So um, as a virologist, uh, actually, I am used in an, in an inappropriate manner uh, the virus because I said, you know, does the virus, the virus behaves in different ways. Actually, um, this is what it looks like. This is what um, the narrative can be. But the virus behaves as a virus, and the virus does not create a pandemic. It is the virus does its own job. It's actually people and um, the way that people behave and the way that um, the system around people is organized that allows these viruses to spread. And so uh, how is it going? Well, uh, in Europe, they, uh, they, they have gotten a handle on it. Um, the situation has been catastrophic in, in, in certain countries, Italy and Spain mainly, and um, the reason why I say catastrophic is that uh, this, this uh, virus has been able to uh, actually be really, really aggressive and uh, nasty in, in particular parts of the country. And so Lombardy, which is in the north uh, um, east of the country, which is the most productive part of the country, has actually had uh, 50% of the deaths that have occurred in the whole country. And so this is, is, is really painful to look at and is, and is dramatic for, for the people who have experienced it. But in fact, um, there must be a reason for it. And I think that our new challenge is to learn from how some systems have been so fragile that uh, like healthcare has collapsed in, in certain, you know, in certain parts uh, of the world. And, and um, I think that it is our job to understand these new dynamics and look at it um, in a multidisciplinary way. And so one of the ways that I think this, pandemic needs to be looked at is through the lens of cities. So why is it such a severe disease in certain cities? Uh, London, Milan, Madrid, New York, uh, Cape Town. So this is, these are just some of the, some examples. And, and uh, so, you know, it's very difficult to say, how are we doing uh, in general, because um, the virus behaves as a virus and the virus doesn't make the pandemic. And so the pandemic has these different shades of color 
because of what people do around a virus that is circulating, that will continue to circulate, and that we really need to um, fight. You mentioned the second wave, and this brings me to uh, what is the second wave? So just in case anybody um, was in denial phase, COVID-19 is, is, is here to stay. It is uh, a viral infection which is becoming endemic, and therefore it will continue to circulate in, uh, in the population of the world uh, for many, many years. And um, why do we say that the first wave is behind us? Well, because most countries of the world implemented a lockdown. And the lockdown, what it does is it, is a ha- it prevents or it, it makes life more difficult for the virus. The virus cannot, cannot easily find other people to infect. And so that's, that's why the first wave was controlled and we flattened the curve. But the curve, we did not um, zero the curve. We flattened the curve. And because we flattened the curve, that is why the virus will still circulate, is still circulating, And if we do not behave appropriately, the virus will reemerge. So unfortunately, uh, there are some situations that um, will need to be managed. Um, One of these situations is the Hajj. The Hajj is um, the uh, pilgrimage of Muslims Uh, to Mecca, and um, there are millions of people who go to Hajj, and if this is uh, considered, and I think it should be considered a gathering at risk, we should be thinking of um, cancelling the Hajj, which is, of course, um, a very, very big issue. And with these big problems that we are going to have to face, I, I, I see that um, some people think that, that it's finished, that it's over. And actually, um, this is exactly where the second wave will come from, because a second wave is not going to come from the gutters. It's not going to come from uh, the ghosts underground. It's not going to come from the sky. It's going to come from people who spread infection and infection gets out of control because people are not physically distancing. And so when you say, will there be a second wave? Um, certainly there, there will be second waves. Uh, what makes the difference? It's people who make the difference. Second wave is us. Second wave is how we behave. Second wave means that uh, if I need to see a collaborator, I will see that collaborator with uh, at least six feet between me and him or her. So um, the second wave is, is really up to us.
And uh, actually, I would like to mention um, a thing because we are on, on a podcast. And I have been working um, with a radio show, which is uh, one of the, it's a very popular radio show in Italy. It's called Caterpillar, by the way. And uh, we have been trying to do public health messaging through this radio show. And we have developed uh, some songs uh, for uh, hand washing and a series of other activities to, to really engage um, uh, listeners because, uh, I mean, COVID-19 is, is, is basically about a chain of um, mistakes or a chain of appropriate behavior. And this appropriate behavior needs to be implemented by the people. It cannot be implemented by who is governing us. So it's actually very important to message to people who are out there and make them understand that they need to wash their hands three times as much they used to do before. And that if they have, uh, particularly if they have people who are fragile in their in their uh, network of relations people who have uh, underlying conditions people who are uh, old uh, they should actually be so applying uh, physical distancing because the virus is 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 here so it was a long explanation, but it was an articulated question. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I try to break those up a little bit, you know, on my side um, to not just, you know, drop this on you like that. But it really is a, a very important series of questions. I guess the other example that I heard from your discussion recently was what's happening in Brazil. And that seems to be a very good example of how the pandemic is should not be a... Uh, it, uh, managed from the side of politicians, but this has to become a personal solution. And can you describe what's happening there? I would, you know, prefer to um, talk about approaches rather than countries, because Brazil is is a very very big place, and and there could very well be, you know, people who are, are trying hard to contain the problem. I would say that. Although ultimately it boils down to the single individual, it is up to the government to provide the policy. And there have been different policies that have been applied in, um, in different places. I said most of Europe went into lockdown. The UK did not go into lockdown and actually had to go into lockdown after that. And... Um, Many countries, and Brazil is one of them, did not uh, Im implement a lockdown, and uh, the infection is on the rise. And uh, Brazil is a very big country. It has a, a lot of, of uh, fragilities, and so there is concern that this could explode. But not that, you know, it's, it's not a problem in other South American countries. We know that Peru is suffering very much. We know that Ecuador is suffering very much. So... Of course, countries that have low income and a lower income or lower resources um, will be hit harder. Yeah, I know that you also mentioned India, and, and it seems like that one's substantially on the rise. Uh, 
Well, yes. I mean, India is a is a country that has um, uh, yeah a lot of a lot of people, a lot of movement, and, uh, and uh, you know a very uh, fragile uh, and certainly um, insufficient healthcare system. So, uh, of course. It's, spreading in India and you know we also have to take into a, into account that um, uh, the numbers are what the numbers are and we address this in, in some uh, one of those seminars that you know uh, the testing protocols and the sampling schemes are not the same uh, and are not harmonized and so it's very difficult to make any statement okay so what about uh control measures. And I know that, you know, maybe there's, uh, where, well, where are we currently with the state on, you know, things like vaccines or therapeutics or even new protocols and things like the plasma phoresis that happens that's the donation that's being used uh, in clinical settings to help alleviate symptoms of, of the virus. Yeah. So of course, uh, because there has been uh, a great number of people infected all at once, there have been many different experimental protocols which have been uh, applied. Uh, of course, uh, antivirals are the best candidates uh, as uh, for treatment. And um, I would say that uh, there there is... Uh, now more and more evidence that, as you said, plasma therapy can uh, be um, uh, another way to counteract the effects of the virus. Um, the, with reference to vaccines, um, I would say that there are many, many, many initiatives, uh, certainly more than 70, probably more around 120, and uh, we certainly will get a vaccine. Uh, my personal point of view is that maybe in a pandemic, we don't need 120 companies fighting each other, but we would, it would have been better to get these people to work together before and, and maybe not have to wait a year and a half for a vaccine. So maybe we have to rethink some, some approaches. That's a really excellent point. I feel very much the same way. Where do you think that uh, that this is going next? I mean, can do we have any kind of crystal ball? I think back in February when we spoke about this, it was everything was very hypothetical, and we didn't really have an idea of where things would possibly go. I don't think either of us thought this would be this extreme. But where do you see the what's going to be happening in the next couple of months? So you know how uh, you said no crystal ball, okay? No crystal ball, but then you you actually do uh, ask me to take the crystal ball from <laughs> uh, from the closet, and so I will take it out and I will say, look, crystal ball, crystal ball. So let me ask you a question: How much okay. is Kevin Falta going to weigh in ten years? And the crystal ball has all its little specks flying around and thinks about it a little bit. And it says, well, you know, I can tell you what Kevin Falta, I can tell you what Kevin Falta uh, would weigh if he, if he ate healthy food and if 
he did physical exercise and, um, and you know, was on a healthy diet. But I can't tell you what Kevin Falta will weigh um, in 10 years if Kevin Falta runs loose and starts eating uh, three times what he usually used to eat. And so <laughs> if you look, so basically I'm telling you that it's behavior. Okay. I get it. Okay. Because I was thinking if you could tell me that I'd go buy the new pants now. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but uh, basically I guess that uh, that's really where I was getting at is uh, so much of what you discussed the other day in the uh, One Health meeting was that there is some sort of social responsibility that everybody shares and that we control the progression of the pandemic. And that, you know, that's such an, it's such an important philosophical take on this. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, uh, that's really where I was going with that. But uh, do you think that, uh, that in the United States, the, the opening up um, that we've ex- exhibited, has that something that maybe is happening too soon in the eyes of a virologist? Well, you know what? Uh, the, the, the debate in the United States is very, very polarized. And there are uh, deniers, uh, but there are, there are also catastrophists. And the truth is that actually both of them are right because... The catastrophists, they see the infection from places in which the infection is a catastrophe and they are afraid of the catastrophe, like New York. And there's another part of the United States that actually hasn't even realized that COVID is here. And we live in Alachua County, and at the moment in Alachua County, there's really been nothing to worry about. And so this is exactly, I think, uh, why we need a new approach. The, the new approach we need is there's no one size fits all. There is not one truth. There are a series of situations which are clearly different and that need to be addressed uh, appropriately. Um, so what I can say is that Um, we really need to start thinking of what can be the results of of spontaneous gatherings, which, like the protests, which, of course, uh, need to be respected, but on the other hand, could represent a very, very severe risk of amplification. No, very good. So I really appreciate you take, taking the time to have the discussion about the current state of this and really giving us a better sense of a new way to think about pandemics, about them really being more of a case of our own behaviors and how we choose to respond to a threat of a virus that simply acts like a virus. So we'll come back on the other side of the break to discuss your new book called Circular Health. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Going into year six, we want the Talking Biotech Podcast to be more about you, the listener. Send us your requests for guests. Send us the questions that you want answered. Voice your concerns. Join us as a guest host. You see, we have built a platform. It's independent from universities and companies, and we control 
where this science show goes. The goal of this podcast has always been to raise the understanding of technology as it works in food, farming, and medicine, so that all of us can together combat misinformation, the copious filth that plagues the internet. We are here to help the environment, the food insecure, those that can have a normal life after a medical breakthrough, and of course, the farmers that feed us. These are the values that make the show continue. So your job is an easy one. Share the podcast in social media. Tell a friend. Tell two friends if you have that many, Science Geek. Tell people you don't really like. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that we continue to share the stories of science, the stories of technology, and the applications that will make our short time as a film of life on the crust of the earth a little more special. So thank you for listening. Send your ideas to kevinfulta at gmail.com. Share the link in social media. And now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ilaria Capua. She's the director of the One Health Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. She's also a world-leading virologist and someone who has been critical at the University of Florida in providing the faculty and staff with timely updates on the current status of the pandemic. And we're very thankful for that. Um, but we wanted to discuss Circular Health, the new book that should be out. Um, this is anticipated out in October. However, currently is available on pre-order because I really want people to understand your philosophy and the rationale behind this One Health res- res- revolution, um, as you phrase it. So, um, uh, tell us a little bit about the background of the book and what led you to start writing. Um, so uh, this book is actually, uh, it's, it's a pamphlet. It's a new way of looking at health. And uh, it was written and it was published in Italian uh, in uh, June 2019, so a year ago. And... Um, and it was, so it was written before COVID. And actually, uh, COVID is the perfect example of why we really need a circular health approach. And so um, it is a book for the general public um, in which uh, on a, let's say, question-answer basis, I have an interviewer who asks me a few questions and we start... Um, we start talking about what is health. So what do you, how do you define health? Is health only not having disease? Is health physical health? Is health absence of pain? Is health mental health and physical health and spiritual health? And so let's say that um, we, we start looking into the definition of health and the origin of the definition of health. And actually, if, you, if we rewind back to 2,500 years ago, the, the philosophy at the time was that um, uh, everything was interconnected. And so 
um, there was a, a, a prevailing uh, theory, which was that four elements, uh, uh, earth, wind, fire, and water, were the elements that uh, drove life. And that the four seasons and the external environment were uh, influenced uh, the outcome of, of health. And basically, that is a very modern way of approaching health because we suddenly realized that, oops, we have uh, global warming and that is actually fire. And uh, we have global warming, um, which is a, a very important environmental issue, which is going to influence our health. And then if you look at all the ramifications of how our health of humans is linked to the health of water, to the health of air, to the health um, of um, a series of, of uh, systems. And so what we do is we start from ancient history and we look we, we run through centuries and we look at how uh, great thinkers put add-ons on the concept of health and transformed it over time. And so basically we go through how, uh, for example, the first microscope. Do you know who discovered, who invented the first microscope? I think it was a guy named Leeuwenhoek. Exactly. It was a Dutch guy. <laughs> And he was a textile merchant. <clears throat> and this, and uh, his objective was to look at what he could feel when he was touching his, his textiles. And so suddenly, by using lenses the other way around, the lenses that Galileo was using at the time, he invented the first microscope. And... What he actually did was he opened the door on the invisible because nobody before him had actually understood the invisible. And so and they had actually imagined that the invisible was there. And so actually, I don't know if you know the story, but he, when he died, he... Uh, he never shared how he had made his microscopes and his lenses. And um, I think I, I have, you know, I've read some things about him. And I think that at the end, he sort of went crazy because he became like a serial magnifier because he magnified and, and drew, like reproduced in drawings, anything that he could magnify, right? Because he had discovered the world of dust of pollen of the wings of insects of bacteria well not bacteria but uh like uh, monocellular organisms and and so what i what i like to highlight in the book is how creative minds coming from a completely different field have actually contributed to gigantic leap, leap forward. And so then, you know, I, I talk a little bit about um, J. 
Jon Snow, uh, Jon Snow, not the uh, character of the Game of Thrones, but the epidemiologist who discovered that cholera was waterborne. And how did he discover that cholera was waterborne? Well, he used a completely different instrument to look at cholera outbreaks. And that instrument was a map. And uh, John Snow was able to, tra to trace the cholera, the cholera outbreak in London in 1850 to a contaminated water pump. And he suddenly opened the door to epidemiology. And that was another world. And so um, today, and so there's lots of little stories about how things were discovered. And there's like some amusing stories, some surprising stories. Um, but the whole point of the book, which by the way, sorry, by the way, goes backwards. So the chapters, it starts with minus seven and then minus six, minus five, minus four, minus four, and you get to chapter zero, which is, okay, so what do we do now? And what do we do at this particular moment in time with big data? And what I think we do have to do is that we, um, have to use that big data as glue uh, to put things uh, together and look at health in a, in a circular way. And so we have to be aware that what, what we pour in water is going to come back to us and that we have to be sustainable and that we have to be aware that we are uh, consuming our generation is actually consuming one and a half times the resources that it, that it um, is entitled to. And so it's time to put all these bits together. It's time to understand, for example, the interaction between pollution, uh, the interaction between pollution and COVID. How is pollution making COVID worse? Is allergy and pollen and allergens making things worse uh, for some people? Is it possible to predict in the future uh, clusters of infection because we are looking at things through a different lens? And this is really what this book is about. So it's about co-advancing the health of humans, animals, plants, and the environment. And it's about human beings, homo sapiens, being the guardians of the planet and therefore understanding that our health of human beings is completely interdependent and interconnected with um, the health of other living beings and with the health of a planet, which might sound really obvious, but actually we're behaving as if it weren't like this. You know, I see that point. And that was really, that was my next question is, well, how is this, your definition of health play into the circular idea? And really, it seems as though, and maybe you can speak to this or correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though the role of science in the last century really has been to take it out of a circular context and put it into a much more linear model that we can understand better, especially when it comes to human disease. Yes, and, you know, it's easier to look at things from a linear model point of view, but the linear model 
is um, certainly wrong. Um, it simplifies. It makes things more digestible. We just need to start thinking another way. So, I mean, Kevin, you know about circular economy. You know about circular agriculture. So why hasn't anybody really thought about circular health? And circular health actually what 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 is the goal of circular health the goal is to make people uh, one of the goals is to make people patients as late in life as possible and so if you have a genetic predisposition for diabetes and you manage your preclinical disease um and you become diabetic when you're 70, it will make a big difference to your quality of life rather than if you become a diabetic at 50. And so if you want to reach this objective and therefore make healthcare more sustainable, you have to make people understand that even, you know, that certain types of balance are essential even from a nutritional point of view. Well, who do you think is the target audience for your book? Is it someone who has much more of an extensive science background or will just about anybody interested in their own health uh, really resonate with the content? So um, we will have a, a new world. Uh, we are already in a new world. Uh, there, there is a, a world before and a world after COVID. And... Um, we can go back to where we were. Um, and you know that this is the path of least resistance. And so we can add, just add on all the difficulties, the crises, all the um, uh, deaths and sufferings that we have had to experience and just do the same thing. Or, or we can learn from our mistakes. We can think about you know, what do we have to do to make the world or what do we need to do to make the perpetuation of mankind more sustainable on the planet? Because if we live in an aquarium, right? It's clear. The planet is a closed system. It's not an open system. It's like a, a, an aquarium. And so how do we get that water recycling system, that air recycling system, that reusage of, of, um, of um, resources. Uh, how do we get it working in a different way, which doesn't strangulate the planet? And, you know, we can, we can do it or not do it. One Health Center, UF, is committed to looking at completely new ways to look at things in a circular manner. So that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> you asked me who this book should be um, read by. I would say also by people who are curious. It's, uh, there's like interesting stories and anecdotes and who's curious about science and who is, um, who is interested and understands lateral thinking. Because lateral thinking is a, is a is is a is a very important it's a backbone of the book and so uh, great change comes with new ways of thinking the rest is add-ons 
Well, I'm sold because I, I know you and I know your work and I, I'm excited about the topic and I appreciate the One Health concept very much. If people were interested in purchasing the book, where could they find it? It is on Amazon. It is on Amazon. Uh, and um, yeah, um, but if you prefer it in hard copy, it's going to be out um, probably in, in October. That's what we're aiming for. Um, uh, there's no nothing right. There's nothing wrong in that book. It's just, as I said, a, a manifesto to to start talking about health in a in a broader manner. It's it's a starting point. That's that's how I see that book. Well, Dr. Ilaria Kapua, thank you very much for your time today. I always appreciate your expertise and your illumination you provide on these important topics. And maybe I'll see you six feet away at the farmer's market this weekend. Yeah, see you at the market then. Thank you, Kevin, for hosting me. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ilaria. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As always, we appreciate your reviews very much. They really help others realize that this is a podcast that has some gravity in uh, legitimately describing important issues in science. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.